Uh, first of all, to everybody here in this room, can I just say uh, I'm in awe of all of you, for, first and foremost, uh, for the sacrifices that you've made to this point and for the sacrifices that you will make on into the future for yourselves, for your family, for your communities and for your country. Uh, you know, that's what we're all put on this planet for. That's what we're all about. At the end of the day, we are, we're herd animals, just like horses. We need to be around other people. We need to support our herd to look after them and to protect them. That's exactly what all of you are wearing the green, the green uniforms for. So, first and foremost, uh, my, my heart goes out to all of you and the journey that you're about to embark on and the one that you've already been on to this point in trying to figure out what it is that you're going to do with your own lives. Uh, let me explain a little bit about to you and justify to you why I'm standing in front of you speaking to you aside from the video. I've run uh, the length of the world from North Pole through the South Pole. As it was mentioned, I was Parliamentary Secretary for Education, Science and Training in Federal Parliament. I was the Federal Member for MacArthur. I, I was um, a Federal Spokesperson for Western Sydney. I was um, Shadow Minister for Sport and Youth. Um, but above, above that, above my run for, through Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Palestine, above my work with North Force, above my work with, uh, with various agencies that I've been involved with, both government and civilian, above my work uh, in, uh, through Vietnam, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the peace treaty between both Australia and Vietnam for the International Red Cross, trying to bring clean water and clean sanitary conditions to that country by running the length of that country. Above my work with India, running the length of India from Kanyakumari through to Kashmir, a uh, distance of 4,790 kilometres from bottom to top, uh, to raise funds for uh, girls' education in that country. Above my work in so many other fields and so many other different things, uh, the one thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that I'm a father of two, a father of two children, and I'm a, a very proud patriot of this country. And I see part of being a patriot of this country is actually standing up and being counted when you need to be. At these point, this particular point in the world's history and in Australia's history, where a lot of people, particularly young people, are going through some of their darkest moments, uh, having trouble trying to get through their HSC, having trouble trying to have the opportunity to study, having the problems uh, trying to get a job, I'd just like to remind them, as I have done through various interviews that I've done, of people in other parts of the world that I've experienced where if you're in Colombia, certain parts of northern Colombia and certain parts of Asia that I've been to and East Timor and a few other places, uh, when the sun goes down at night, there is no light. You can't read a book. You can't... You can't uh, turn on a light, you can't turn on a TV, you can't open up a computer, you can't take yourself away from that world, just sit outside and watch the stars, get some sleep until the sun comes up the next morning. Their window of opportunity is incredibly limited. Ours is not. Ours is not. I went to uh, um, Egypt and spent some time over in Egypt and I visited some people in a very, very poor community, Christian community, uh, out there in the desert. I saw some of the most absolutely poverty-stricken places and people I had ever seen in my life there in Egypt. And I'll never forget going out there to the desert. My job was to work with the International Red Cross and to hand out some food, a little Tupperware container about the size of a, kid's, a kindergarten kid's lunchbox that was supposed to do these families for a week. Uh, and uh, my job was to do that, to wash the hands, the feet and the faces of the children so that the doctors could examine them. Uh, and then I had the privilege of going back to some of these tin shanties that these people lived in overnight. And one of the things that stuck out in my mind was these kids all had burn marks all over their bodies, little infants with burn marks all over their bodies. And I couldn't understand why so many kids were burnt. And then I realised that they they cook inside a little tin shed that they share with rats and anything else that's trying to survive the desert. 
And sometimes there is nine children and one mother that live in that little tin shed, no bigger than where we would keep our lawnmower. And these, these people, they cook, they cook on a little gas stove. And of course, you've got these little kids walking around in the darkness with a pot handle sticking over and they're heating up some water so that they can make a meal of, of porridge or of oats for their, their kids for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, and it's pitch black in there and of course they're knocking these things over and they're getting bumped by them and this is why so many of those children are burnt. This is just a normal life for those kids and those people in those places. I saw a woman there that was oozing, oozing uh, smoke and, um, and soot out of her ears and her nose because her job was to collect the plastic that was collected by a fellow that had a donkey and a cart that would pick that up from Cairo, bring it out to the desert, dump all the rubbish there in the desert. And various people had different jobs. And this one girl's job was to collect the plastic. She had a great big brass ingot. And she would stick this, this, this stick into the, into the plastic when it was molten, when it was burning. And all of us have seen plastic when it burns. It's basically just petroleum. It's made out of petroleum and it gives off a black soot. And her job was to, once it started to get molten, lift it into this brass ingot. And when she filled up this great big brass ingot, she got paid two Egyptian dollars, or two Egyptian pounds, which was equivalent to 50 cents. And consequently, because she was breathing in all this black soot all the time, her eyes weeped a black soot, her ears weeped a black soot, her nose weeped a black soot. And this was her, her lot in life. This is what she had to deal with. I saw these little children, far younger than mine were at that point in time, little children, they would have been six or seven years old. Their job was to collect metal, collect metal. And on this one particular day when I was out there, they had just gotten a whole lot of rubbish from the local hospital in Cairo and brought it out to there. And there was a mound of it. And I saw these kids trying to take the needles out of syringes that had come from the hospitals with their bare hands, trying to pull them out. They didn't have pliers or anything. Trying to pull out the needles and break the needles out so that they could stack all that little bit of metal together so that they could get one Egyptian pound when they had collected a kilo of this steel. And they had all of these scars and they were bleeding in their fingers and their arms from pulling these needles out out of these syringes so that they could do that just to try and survive. And then I went around to a lot of the women that were there trying to learn how to read. And the saddest thing about that whole situation was because of the position that I held, I had dinner that night on this beautiful ferry on the Nile with the Minister for Health. And she, she tried to convince me that these people did not exist. She tried to convince me that they don't have poverty as such that I'd seen that particular day and every other day that I was there. She tried to convince me that they had the ballet, they had the pyramids, they had history, they had, they had everything. They were Egyptian. They were part of the creation of this life and its history and its culture. And she wouldn't, wouldn't believe that these people even existed. And I was trying to fathom how on earth a minister of that government could even think like that. And you know what I found out later on? Over in Egypt, you have to have an ID card. Okay, so have, to have an ID card to be registered as a human being in the country, you needed to have a birth certificate, which is fine. Many of the women couldn't get birth certificates because they couldn't read and they couldn't write. So often the husbands were nowhere to be seen or the fathers were nowhere to be seen. So it was up to the women to try and fill out a form to register their children. And because they couldn't read and because they couldn't write, they couldn't fill out something as basic as a form to get a birth certificate, to get a, an ID card, to get an opportunity to work. So they didn't even show up on the government's radar. They didn't exist as far as they were concerned. That's why they lived in shanties in the places where they were. So when any of us feel like we're poorly done by, like we're locked down, like we have to wear a damn mask or we have to put up with somebody yelling at us or we have to put up with this or we have to put up with that, 
Just remind yourself of some of the stories I've told you here in relation to all of that, and then you might start to realise how incredibly fortunate you are and how you have been assigned with the opportunity to make a difference to people, not only in this country, but indeed right around the world. That's one of the great things of wearing that uniform that you've got on at this point in time. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my life. Uh, I grew up, I was a motor mechanic by trade. I grew up, I was trying to get a job, could not get a job anywhere. Uh, I was one of seven kids and our family grew up out in Western Sydney. And I remember my father saying to me, uh, son, you're too dumb to go on at school. That was his words. You're too dumb to go on at school. Uh, you need to leave school. And quite frankly, we can't afford for you uh, um, to just, to, you know, to continue to go to school. You've got to go out and get a job. And I used to love working on my dad's old FC Holden and uh, cleaning out the dust out of the brake drums, which you wouldn't dare do these days, but anyway, uh, because of the asbestos in there. But anyway, I used to love working on this car with my dad and working away on this car. So he said, he suggested me to become a motor mechanic, a panel beater or a spray painter. He said, because you'll always have work or an auto electrician. And um, <clears throat> so I went looking for a job and everywhere I went, they said there was a lineup sometimes almost as long as 500 metres or a kilometre long of kids trying to get an apprenticeship. Uh, and uh, I couldn't get a job anywhere I went. Everywhere I went, they said to me, what experience do you have? I said, I'm 14 years old. They said, well, where's your school certificate? I said, I haven't got a school certificate. And they said, well, you know, sorry, we can't employ you. And I said, well, well, what do I need to do to get employed? And they said, you need to have experience. I said, yeah, but if you won't give me a job, how do I get experience? They said, well, we're sorry, it's not our problem. So I went from place to place to place looking for a job. Finally, I rolled up this place and I wised up and I rolled up this place. This guy came out to me, he said, what do you want? I said, I said before I said anything, he said, what do you want? Because if you're after a job, we got none. He said, I'm sick and tired of young people coming into this place he said they want to work in here, they want a job, they want to run the place on the first day, they want to do the least amount of work, they want to be paid the most amount of money, they want to work the least amount of hours, blah, 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 and he went on and on and on and on and on. And when he finally stopped, he said, so what do you want? I said, I'm not after a job. He goes, oh, mate, I'm so sorry, what can I do for you? I said, I said um, I'm after experience. He said, what? I said, I'm after experience. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I said, you're not giving anyone a job. Nobody's giving anyone a job at the moment. So I said, I made up my mind. I don't want a job. What I want is experience. I said, I will work for you for three months for free. I'll do anything that you want. I'll get the lunches. I'll clean the floors. I'll clean the bathrooms. I'll clean the toilets. I'll, I'll, I'll paint the tyres on the cars. I'll clean the cars. I'll do anything that you want for three months. All I want in return is a piece of paper that says that I've got experience of working in a mechanical workshop for three months. He said, are you serious? You'll work for free? And I said, yes. He said, you'll start at 7 a.m.? You won't knock off until 5 a.m.? I said, yes. And you'll do that for nothing? He said, you'll clean the toilets? You'll do anything that I ask you to do? I said, yes. He said, all right, you got yourself a job. So I started with this guy, and I started working away there. And I'll never forget one of the proudest moments of my life. This guy came up to me, Laurie Archer, and he said to me, he said, do you know what, Pat? He said, I've never seen anybody do the menial tasks of life. The simple things like cleaning the tools, cleaning the workshop floor, cleaning the toilets, getting the lunches, cleaning the taxis, being polite to people. I've never seen anybody come in and do that sort of thing the way that you've done it. He said... And you ask for nothing in return. He said, if you want an apprenticeship, I'm more than happy to give you an apprenticeship. I would love for you to stay on. I went home that night and I told my mum and dad that I got an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic. It's one of the happiest days of my life. And I worked away as a motor mechanic. I got my qualification. And I'll never forget, it's amazing how things happen in your life. They almost happen on purpose. Obviously they do. It's like fate. And so I'll never forget, I was there working away on a car. I was underneath this car and I was taking the diff out of the car, the rear end out of the car, and I 
slipped on the spanner, grease and oil in my hair, slipped on the spanner, took all the skin off the back of my knuckles, my knuckles were bleeding, I was cursing and swearing underneath the back of this car, my boss said to me, hey Pat, come out, come out of here, slide out here, have a look at this. I went out, I stood on the side of the road, Woodville Road at Granville, uh, and the western suburbs of Sydney, and I stood on the side of the road, and I saw all of these kids on the other side of the road, school kids, clapping and cheering and carrying on. I saw these balloons going up in the air. There was police vehicles going past with sirens on the roof. And as these vehicles went on down the road, I saw these runners coming out the back of there. And these runners, they looked like elite athletes. They had legs on them like racehorses. They looked fit and healthy and strong like Olympians, like Olympians. And as they ran on down the road, my boss said to me, he said, see that? He said, they're the Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon runners. He said, those guys will run day and night, night and day, day and night, night and day, day and night, night and day until they make it to Melbourne. They will run 1,000 kilometres until they make it to Melbourne. And he said, see that? You will never see a young person ever do anything like that. And I said, why? And he said, because young people don't have the ability to set their mind on a goal and work towards it, work towards it, work towards it, work towards it until they achieve it. He said, they want everything to happen instantly. I'd heard this other bit before. You know, they want to be rich on the first day, they want to do the least amount of work, and they want to get paid the most amount of money. And he went on and on and on and on and on like that. That was his regular spiel. And I sort of agreed with him to a point. Then one guy came running past at the back of the field, and he didn't look like any Olympic athlete to me. This scrawny little old fellow in his 60s. His name was Cliff Young, and he ran from Sydney to Melbourne against some of the best runners in this country, and later on some of the best runners in the world. And not only did he match it with them, but he beat them, he won the first Sydney to Melbourne race. I'll never forget the numbers of people that grew from being two or three people outside of a garage clapping and cheering this little old man on, to being tens of thousands of people down in Doncaster in Victoria, clapping and cheering this little old potato farmer on as he ran on into Doncaster in Victoria to the Westfield to finish the Westfield run at the end of 1,000 kilometres. And you know why that was so much of a phenomenon? Because often in this country, we get so many athletes, we get so many people, and we put them up on a pedestal and we grab them and we get people like Ian Thorpe. Yeah, have you all heard of Ian Thorpe, the swimmer? Yeah, you know, yeah. Won a few gold medals in the Olympics back in 2000, did all right uh, for a little while after that as well. But I'm just using him as an example. They put him up on a, a pedestal and they go, well, that guy's great, you know. He's a fantastic athlete, but I could never be like that. Why not? Ah, oh, he was born with size 11 feet. You know, he's born with paddles on the ends of his ankles. He's just, he must be genetically modified or something. His parents must have been good swimmers or he must have been this or must have been that or must have been whatever. We hear it all the time, don't we? As soon as you put somebody up on a pedestal, somebody else comes along and they make excuses why they're different to anybody else. And you know why they do that? Because it's too hard to try and emulate what they do. It's so much easier to tear them down or to make a point of difference and say, that's all right for them, but I'm different. I'm different, so I don't have to try. I don't have to try and be like them. So easy. But when Cliff Young, in his 60s, ran 1,000 kilometres from Sydney to Melbourne, while a whole lot of other people in their 30s, 40s, 50s were sitting on their ass waiting for their sons, their daughters or somebody else to pick them up, and to take them to the shops because they were too overweight or they were too lazy to be able to get there themselves or they were sitting around waiting for something good to happen to them like winning the lottery or somebody to give them a job or somebody else to do something for them. Instead of that, you looked at Cliff Young and you thought to yourself, my God, if that little old guy can do that, why can't I? And I'll tell you something, that motor mechanic at that garage of Gramble thought exactly that. I saw the fanfare, I saw the prize, I saw everything that this man was. I didn't see how old he was, all I saw was that's something I want to be. And with that in mind, 
I went out there and I tried and I failed 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 and I tried and I succeeded. I went from knowing nothing about food, nutrition, exercise, through to being one of the elites in my, in, in my chosen field. I've travelled the world at somebody else's expense. I've spoken to your special forces on numerous occasions. I've spoken to kings and queens. I've, I got into politics not because I'm a great orator, not because I'm a great politician, I got into politics because I ran around Australia for our centenary of federation. I linked together our states and territories. I sowed together a seed of humanity for community after community after community after community. I taught a simple lesson that if one man can run around the whole of this country by simply putting one foot in front of the other and never giving up on that dream, never giving up on that goal, I, to I told them how fortunately how fortunate we all are in this country that we don't have different currencies from state to state, that we don't speak different languages from state to state, that we can freely travel within the country from state to state. This was back, this was back in the year 2000, right? The lead up to our centenary of federation. And I told everybody that simple message and I said if one man can do this, by simply putting one foot in front of the other around the whole of this country. Imagine what we could all do if we worked together as one single unit. One single unit. And that was the message. After I completed that journey six months and ten days later, 14,500 kilometres, going through every state and territory of this country, including Tasmania, quick flight across to Tasmania, 80 kilometres a day every single day, no days off. After I completed that journey, I got a call from John Howard, the then Prime Minister of the country, and he said to me, Pat, I was wondering if I could have a conversation with you. Could you meet me for a cup of tea at Kirribilli House? I'll never forget that conversation. All I could think about during my time there was how I could sneak out the door with one of those cups and saucers. Had the little crest on the side of it. <laughs> I didn't, by the way. <laughs> But I'll never forget the conversation. He said to me, Pat, I was so impressed with what you did and the way that you did it, how you welded this country together with your footsteps and your words. He said, I was so impressed and I've received so much mail from the mayors of the towns around this country. He said, look, I don't know what side of politics you're on. I don't know whether you've even contemplated politics or not. But he said... If you would be prepared to run for us at the next federal election, I promise you my support and the support of the cabinet ministers to get things done for the people of your area. Little did I know that back then, for the Liberal Party, the seat of MacArthur was seen as unwinnable. I had to win 14% just to get to zero and then try and build on that to try and win. Uh, and uh, it was seen as unwinnable for us at that point in time and taken in Campbelltown a lot of housing commission areas. And I'll, I'll never forget, I'll never forget, never forget, this is, this is not, I'm not trying to be political, but I'll just tell you the life of a, a young green politician. I'll never forget, uh, I remember John Howard offering me that, that opportunity and I said yes. Uh, because I have a simple philosophy, my philosophy is, you have opportunities come along in your life, you either take them or you live on regret. And I've not succeeded at every single thing that I've ever done, but I've taken every opportunity that's been presented to me and I have no regrets, none at all, none at all. And so with that in mind, I took on this role. And I'll never forget, I was going to a place in Claymore in the western suburbs of Sydney, high concentration housing commission places. I went and knocked on this guy's door. And the dog was barking at me from behind the torn screen door. And uh, this guy came out. And he said, what do you want? He was wearing a white singlet, pair of shorts, pair of thongs, great big overweight guy. He said, what do you want? I said, uh, I said oh, sir, my name's Pat Farmer. I'm running for the seat of MacArthur at the next federal election at the end of the year. And he said, um, I, I, I said, I'd just like to give you my card if there's anything I can do to help you. Please let me know if there's anything that you're passionate about that I need to raise. Please let me know. He said, piss off. <laughs> piss off. He said, 
we don't vote for your kind around here. He said, get out of here. And I said, all right, sure, no problems. So I walked out, I walked down the, the stairs, I walked out the front, and I noticed the past pale on grass was up to my hips. Across the other side of the road from me was a burnout car, and there was a bridge that went over a canal there, and it was covered in graffiti. And I looked at this, and I looked back to this guy's housing commission home, and I grew up in housing commission house myself, and this place, the door was hanging off the hinges, the place was a mess. And I walked back in and I knocked on the door, the guy came to the screen door again he said, I thought I told you to piss off. And I said, you did. He said, you did, but I said, come here, come here for a minute. He stepped outside the door and he looked down at me, he said, what? And I said, have a look. What do you see? I said, what do you mean, what do I see? I said, look out there, I said, see that grass growing up? It's up around your hips. I said, do you think they'd allow that at Eskol Park or up at Eaglevale or they'd allow that over at Woodbine or any of the other areas around here? I said, just because you're, you're renting a place, just because you're in housing commission, doesn't mean that you deserve to have a place like this. I said, and that burnout car across the road, how long has that been there? I said, it's rusty, how long has that been there? I said, it's been there for about a year. I said, is it your car? He said, no. I said, how do you let them dump a car outside of your home like that? And he goes, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I said, well, you can complain to your local member. So you can complain to the council about it. You can get it moved. This is your home. This is where you live. Have some respect. Other people should have some respect for you as well. He looked at me. He looked at the grass. He looked at his house. He looked at the door. He looked at the graffiti. He looked at the car. Put his arm around my shoulder, he said, give me one of those cards. Took the card, I don't know whether he voted for me or not. The bottom line was I got elected and I won that, that year by the second largest margin in the country and I went on to spend nine years in federal politics. Funniest thing about that whole scenario is that I also went on to become parliamentary secretary for education, science and training. That's second in charge for education, science and training. Not bad for a kid that left without his school certificate. So all I'm trying to say to all of you by, by telling you a little bit about my life is this. If you never ever give up on your dreams, if you believe in yourself when others doubt you, <coughs> excuse me, if you truly believe in your dreams and you, and you never give up on yourself when others around you doubt you, then you can be anything that you want to be. I have a simple saying and it's this. There is no force on this earth and none in hell greater than your will. If you want to do something, and I mean literally, if you want to do anything with all your heart, you can and you will find a way. You can and you will find a way. If you don't truly want to do it, you'll simply find an excuse. So my job here today, with all of you, is to remind you of that. To say to all of you, Figure out what it is that you really want individually, with all your heart, and remember, no excuses. Thank you. During your runs, how did you deal with like sort of small niggles or injuries or any sort of issues you had when you were running? Yeah, quite simply, uh, I learned the hard way. 
I learned what was a permanent injury and what wasn't a permanent injury. So you learn pretty quickly when you're doing the amount of kilometres that I do and you, you're travelling through the train that I do, whether it be soft sand, whether it be on bitumen, whether it be on trail, whether it be on climbing mountains or on mountains themselves, whether it be on snow and ice. Uh, you learn pretty quickly uh, what's the sort of thing which is just the normal humdrum of aches and pains that you have to put up with. All of you know about carrying packs and, and running around in boots and trying, to, and, and trying to march day in, day out through very hot conditions and a long, arduous work, uh, that monotony of work. There is this dull pain that just sets in, which is more about your mind and your body control. And then there is the other things where you actually tear a tendon or you're actually doing some serious damage. So you learn very quickly between the two. And the way of dealing with both of those is to know and understand your body. So I did a lot of research. I listened to a lot of people. I, I, I've always found, and I still find today, I spend a lot of my life learning from anybody and everybody. I ask questions. And so ne you should never ever be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing, as Captain Harrison said, there's no such thing as a dumb question. That there is a whole lot of, there is a, a, something dumb about being completely silent when you need to know the answer to something that's gonna, gonna support you in your endeavours moving forward. So with that in mind, I spoke to as many people as I possibly could. I learned about food, nutrition, training, exercise. I spent a lot of time at the Institute of Sport and now I sit on the board for the Australian Sports Commission as well as one of the directors. I, I have had sleep deprivation tests done on me. Uh, for the Simpson Desert, I had to run across the Simpson Desert in summer. The temperatures were in excess of 50 degrees Celsius. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and I had to run across the Simpson Desert. Uh, and I had to, in order to break this record of, of uh, three days and 16 hours, which was the original record set by Ron Grant and Tony Rafty when they raced across there, in order for me to break that, I had to try and run the 379 kilometres in less time than that in a summer month, which I, I chose December, and then I broke my own record again in January. It took nine hours off it again after I broke it the first time. But in order to do that, I realised I had to take on the expertise of people that really knew what they were talking about. So I spent time at the Institute of Sport, I spent time with Helen O'Connor, who was the chief nutritionist at the Institute of Sport at the time. She taught me all about isotonic drinks, uh, uh, carbohydrates, she taught me all about the fuels that our body needs, she taught me all about tapering, she taught me all about making sure that I have a protein diet if I want to build muscle and a carbohydrate if I want, a carbohydrate diet if I want endurance. And I learned all about that. I learned that the carbohydrate uh, diet actually holds the fluids as well and saves you from dehydrating as much as you would normally without, with a different type of diet. So I learned about that. I did sleep deprivation tests so that I could get by with an absolute minimum of sleep. One of the things they discovered about me was that if I could sleep for just between nine minutes and 11 minutes, I, I would get recovery. If I slept for longer than that, I'd wake up tired. If I slept for less than that, I would wake up tired. So between the normal deep sleep periods of between uh, 1 a.m. between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. in the morning, I would sleep for nine to 10 minutes. They'd just throw our space blanket on the desert floor. I'd collapse onto it. I learned how to relax my body completely, go into a deep sleep straight away, recover, straight, recover as quickly as possible. They'd wake me and my crew would wake me and I'd take off again. And I did that through normal deep sleep period. I pushed on and I set the record at three days, eight hours, <coughs> 37 minutes and eight seconds. And then I went out there and took nine hours off my own record a, a year later when I did some more work with Barry Holcomb and, and um, the uh, CSIRO uh, on, clo on clothing, uh, wearing the right clothing so that my, my body um, was able to breathe very well and so that the, the sweat would dry off my body. Oh, one thing I just want to say to you, I find this interesting, maybe you may or may, may not. The human body has the capacity to adapt within a two week period. Uh, within two weeks, you see the veins on most people's body that live in hot climates, you'll see their veins sticking out like road maps. And that's because your veins come to the outer layers of the body in a hot climate 
so that when the air passes over the top, you get a cooling effect. So when you sweat, the air passes over the top, dries out the sweat, and you get a cooling effect from it. That's why our veins are like that. But if you go to anywhere in the northern hemisphere, you'll be struggling to see anybody's veins. It's because the veins move to a lower layer of, underneath a layer of fat, and they get an insulation effect from it all. And that's just what the body does naturally. And that's why some human beings can survive incredibly well out in the hot climates, and some people can survive incredibly well in sub-zero conditions, and I've done both. And I've seen, as true to the AIS and to the sports scientists there, that your body does adapt and it only takes two weeks to do it. So, does that answer your question reasonably well? Thank you. Um, Use questions, just ask the question, get back to your CEO or one, you'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, if, if you want to try one, that's fine, that's, that's fine too. I don't know if we can do it because use that. So that's fine. I'm going to just ask you a quick question, Pat. Yep. Um, so, uh, just in short, like, I, I come from a logistics background, I understand how logistics works. Uh, for a lot of guys that are just starting out to school of infantry, logistics kind of stops up at Cazanamo and pretty much your house, which is what you carry on your back. How did you carry your stores in the Arctic Circle? Yeah. What happened there? Uh, when, when, I was, when I did the run from North Pole to South Pole, that was over 20,000 kilometres. Uh, so uh, just naturally, you know, you only got to measure the circumference of the Earth. Uh, so I, I obviously I flew across from uh, the bottom of Argentina to the South Pole into a place called Union Glacier. The Russians flew me across into there. I landed in Union Glacier, uh, uh, then hooked around, got off the uh, Russian Antelope plane out the back entrance, sort of <coughs> continued on and ran, um, and ran a, a loop around there to Hercules Inlet and then on into the South Pole. It took me uh, 20 days to do the South Pole on its own, uh, on its own. Uh, but it was part of the whole journey, um, which was some sort of record at that time. I think at the, point, the time when I did that, back in 2011, I was the fastest man to the South Pole. Um, uh, it was, it, uh, the North Pole, by comparison, was much shorter. The, the, it was only 850 kilometres, but the North Pole took me 31 days to get through from the North Pole being dropped off by Russian helicopter in the North Pole and then make my way from there out to Canada. I was dragging a sled, in answer to your question, I was dragging a sled. The sled was basically a cut down plastic kayak with skids on the bottom of it, so it would move across the, the sastrugi very well. The sastrugi is just the snow and the ice, or the ice that's on the, sea, uh, on the top of the sea there, and the wind blows it in a certain pattern, and so it's like ridges in the snow that you have to, you have to get over. So hence the rails on the, bottom of the, on the bottom of the sled. So I would drag that along. I trained in Sydney, on the beaches of Sydney, dragging tyres, three truck tyres along the beach every morning, up and down the beach, up and down Maroubra Beach, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Everybody thought I was an absolute lunatic. And then I went off to Central Park, New York, and I did the same thing there. It was minus 10 degrees, there was a lot of snow around, and I would drag uh, these tyres from Harlem that I got from the junkyard over there. I took a harness from Australia and I dragged these tyres from where I was staying at Harlem down into, down into um, uh, Central Park and then dragged them around there. If you know Central Park in New York, it's five kilometres in distance uh, and I would go around there four times. Uh, that would be my morning training with the, with the tyres. So just to get used to that. I weigh 65 kilograms. So I'm only a scrawny little fella. Um, having said that, I spent some time uh, doing what you guys do when I was, when I was up in, uh, in the Tuvi Islands uh, with North Force. I was carrying a backpack that weighed 60 kilograms, so I know what you go through. It's bloody hard work, that's all I can say. But uh, um, I only weigh 65 kilos. I dragged a sled um, when I was in the North Pole for, um, for 30 days out of the North Pole, that sled weighed 100 kilograms. It had my supplies in it because um, we, you know, you just had to carry be completely self-sufficient. It had my tent in there. It had a 303 rifle, old, old school 303 rifle I got off the Russians. A couple of bullets, a couple of ice axes, um, some extra snowshoes, 
and it had uh, in there my food stores, which consisted of a hell of a lot of butter, and I use butter because it goes to a chalky consistency, a hell of a lot of dehydrated food that you would melt snow and add to it, and a hell of a lot of olive oil because it's high in calorie content and it was the only thing that wouldn't freeze. And I used to drink copious amounts of olive oil when I was in the North Pole trying to replace the calories. Uh, it was disgusting, but it's how I survived into that. But my sled weighed 120 kilos, so twice my body weight. And yes, I was dragging along snow and ice, but there are some parts where they call it, um, uh, sorry, there are some parts of the North Pole, which is an ice cube that floats on the ocean, that as it gets close to a land mass, it builds up like a junkyard. And so for 10 kilometres, I would be lift, manhandling this sled and moving it through this junkyard of ice that was like a three-storey building stacked up and in and out of these places, and at the same time keeping my eyes out for polar bears and trying to avoid those damn things and being ready with an ice axe in the other hand in case one, I did come across one. So, um, yeah, so that was it in a nutshell. I'm sorry, please come down and ask your question. Uh, so, did you find it harder to do the, like, academic sort of stuff, like going to parliament rather than the sort of cardio running um, sort of stuff? Because, as you said, you did drop out of high school. Yeah, look, a bit, a bit, a bit of both. I, I still find it difficult, that whole academia side of things, but I now have a master's in business. I went back to school and university at a late age. I made up for my shortfalls. And I think that you never stop learning in life. So you, you, can never, you, you should never say to yourself, I'm too old or I'm too this or I'm too that to, to learn. So, uh, you know, I, I just realise what my faults are. I adopt the same, the same philosophy to all of my faults, whether it be in education, whether it be in physical fitness. And I realise that I am the sum total of everything that I've ever done in the past. And in order to achieve a goal, whether it be past a degree or whether it be run a, an ultra marathon, you do it in increments and you build up little bits. Many of you I ran with, some of you I ran with this morning in the 5K run, and I was trying to get that message to you, all of you this morning that I ran with, about trying to just improve just incrementally. People make the biggest mistake when they try and make a great big leap in one hit. That's because they don't have the mental capacity to be able to hold back and just improve a little bit at a time. I would rather be the person that wears somebody else down over time and overtakes them at the finish line than somebody that overtakes them at the start, then falls apart and drops back and, and doesn't finish at all. And it's the same with academia. So everything can be achieved just small steps. And that's why my philosophy of ultra-marathon running and running adapts so well to business and life in general. Uh, yes, you have a question. So where do you find the motivation to go from goal to goal and um, not be complacent and to push your limits to what your body and mind can handle? Well, I mentioned earlier on about the fact that, uh, you know, my father didn't think I was too bright and I had a little bit of a setback when I was growing up. That just made me more determined, I think, and I th that's been the story of my life, I suppose. I will share a story with all of you. Uh, a number of years ago, it's, it's just common knowledge, a number of years ago I was planning to do the run around Australia for our Centenary Federation. My wife Lisa and I had planned that that would be the last run that I would do and then I would get a real job and then I would be a, a normal person and then I would get on with life as, as it is. Uh, I'll never forget, I was, I, I was out preparing for this event, I announced to the world, to Channel 9 and to everybody through the media that this is what I was going to do. And uh, I got a call from the Camden police to say, um, Pat, where are you? And I said, I'm at Taramara. Um, <clears throat> they said, we're coming to pick you up. I said, why? And they said, we can't tell you, but we'll be there soon. Um, just wait at the station. Uh, and I said, all right. So. I waited at the, the station and in that moment, the next two hours were the most uh, gruelling 
two hours of my life, I, everything was going through my head from the red lights that I'd driven through or the, the, the parking fines I hadn't paid right through to um, perhaps my mother, something might have happened to my mother because she was looking after my two young children that day. And when they finally arrived, they told me that uh, my wife had died, that she was, um, she was driving the car down not far from our home. The car pulled off to, over to the other side of the street, bumped into a fence, and, and they found her dead. And um, they'd come to get me to do two things, one, to identify the body, and number two, to um, try and help them puzzle what, was, what might be wrong with her. We found out from the coroner's report at a later date she had a heart murmur, which we knew about. <clears throat> the doctors always said if there was going to be a problem, it would be when she's given childbirth because that's when a woman goes through the most amount of uh, pressure and pain. Uh, um, but she had survived both of those, so we didn't think it was an issue. So, cut a long story short, uh, she passed away. Uh, the valve um, just popped out of, her, out of her heart, just completely out of the blue. Then I was left with, what the hell do I do? I mean, this was the sensible side of my life and the organised side of my life, and here I was in no man's land. Uh, so do I do this run that I'd planned? Do I get a real job? Do I, what, how do I tell the kids that they don't have a mother any longer? Uh, how do I get on with my life? How do I pick myself up? What the hell do I do? So I spent the next two weeks in my pyjamas going from room to room in the house and friends were bringing me chicken soup and for the kids and looking after us. Channel 9 were parked outside my door trying to get an answer on and uh, what just loved to see me cry on TV, just wanted to see that. Uh, and um, I'll never forget going up to the letterbox and I opened up this letter and my wife and I when we had our two children, we decided we would sponsor two children from overseas that weren't as fortunate as ours. And so we, we had these two kids in Uganda that we had sponsored and there was this letter that I opened up as I was walking back in my stale old pyjamas back into the house and I opened up the letter and it said, uh, Dear Mr and Mrs Farmer, we're just writing to you from UNICEF to let you know that little Jacqueline Labatu is still alright. And you may have seen on the news that her village got attacked uh, and many of the children were killed and a lot of people were killed uh, in the village. But we want to let you know that she is all right, so please continue your support for Jacqueline because she needs you now more than ever. And I looked at this and my daughter came out the door and she wanted to know what was going on. My daughter at that stage was, um, uh, she was two years old and my son was 10 months old. And, and she was just wanting to know what's going on. And I sat down there and I put my arm around her and I read this letter to myself and I looked at her and I looked at her and I thought to myself, how fortunate are my kids? This child will grow up in that environment uh, through no fault of, of, of their own, those kids in this other country, their village has been attacked, they're losing their parents, they're losing their siblings, they're losing all these other friends around them. Uh, and how do you justify just cold outright murder like that? Uh, at least in my case, it was something that's just, it's just an act of God, it's just one of those things and we had a beautiful life before that. So instead of feeling negative about what had happened, I started to feel positive for the years that I had and the two beautiful children that I had left over from it all. That gave me the strength to be able to get out there, to get, walk up to, the door, up, up to the door of this caravan and to announce to Channel 9 that yes, I was going to do the run around Australia for our Centenary Federation. As I mentioned to all of you earlier on, that run led on to me becoming a Member of Parliament, which led on to me doing what I did in Parliament and getting more than a billion dollars allocated to the area I represented and other things as well which led on to me getting out of Parliament and going to the North Pole, the South Pole for the International Red Cross, which led on to me doing um, Vietnam and India and Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Palestine, which led on to me being here in front of you today. As I said to somebody earlier on, I am the sum total of every other thing that's happened to me in my life prior to this date and this time. So 
there's a plan for all of us. You can look at things negatively or you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get on with the job. That's what I choose to do. And so consequently I'm able to do the things that I have. So I hope that that has answered you, your question. And I just want to say to all of you, uh, perhaps if there's, no more, if there's no more questions, or, or yeah, uh, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll answer a couple more questions, but I just want to say to all of you, I am very grateful for having this audience here today. I'm very grateful for having the honour of running on your base to raise funds for, for Reach Out, which is an organisation that supports youth mental health. If through this run I'm able to raise a significant amount of money and I'm able to change the lives of some of those young people and maybe even save a life, then you allow me to do that and my, my co-runners and my crew to do that. You allow me to be here. And not only that, but you personally allow me the opportunity to be able to speak to all of you and prove to myself that I still have worth in my life makes me feel, makes me feel that it's, it was worthwhile getting out of bed this morning, that it was worthwhile doing the things I do. Many people will reflect on who Pat Barmer is as this fellow that just runs. And he just runs because he's got nothing else to do. But I don't. I run because of opportunities like this, opportunities to influence and inspire other people. And I don't mind being in pain if that's what it takes to do that. So every single time I lace up my shoes, like you lace up your boots, every single time I get out there to do what I do for work, I try to make a difference, just like you do as well. Just like you do as well. So I have the greatest respect for you guys and what you do, and I ask you to have the greatest respect for me and my fellow runners, because for us, it's not about winning a race. It's not about a gold medal. It's not about running. It's about what I can do with the tools that God gave me and, and how I can change other people's lives through that. And this moment right here now is exactly that. Uh, yes, you have a question, sir. Yeah, but um, you get you on the way back right here. So uh, I don't know if you're aware, but a lot of people in the room uh, on the journey have just entered army and have hit the speed hump as they've arrived here at the School of Infantry and somehow ended up with an injury. So I just wondered whether you had any personal experiences where you faced, not at such an extreme level as what you've spoken about previously, but had the injuries that you've had to conquer, just the skeletal injuries and et cetera, to stay motivated? And the second part of the question is, um, I guess each and every one of us, when we get up, have to find that motivation, pull the shoes on and step out the door. and. Motivation is probably a little bit piss weak. We need to sort of get up and have the discipline to do it. Uh, I just wonder how you conquered that. Those thoughts like, hey, do I want to do the case today? Thank you so much. Two, two fantastic questions. I'll just, the second one first. The second one, I remember going along and listening to a guy by the name of Anthony Robbins, and this guy's a great international guest speaker. He motivates everybody, they gets audience like this, and he'd have you guys all up rubbing each other's backs and doing star jumps and yelling in the air and doing this and doing that and all the rest of it. I remember listening to this guy and uh, then I got up the next morning. I was out there, it was a late night and there was thousands of people in the audience and everybody was hyped up, we were yelling and we were cheering and doing all the things he told us to do and it was fantastic, right? Then came to 4 a.m. in the morning the next morning when I had to get up for training and I went out the door from my place at Catherine Field out near Camden and there's frost on the ground and I got out of bed and I went running out the door and I went running down the road and the dog came out and bit me on the back of the leg. Another dog barked at me. It was cold, it was miserable and I was thinking, where's all the hype now? You know, and the, the bottom line is this. You can listen to the most eloquent speakers in the world talk about what you should do and what other people do. But unless they walk the walk, unless they... They walk the talk. Don't worry about following them. Because there's a lot of great speakers out there. But there's nothing that motivates a person greater than somebody that's actually done it, somebody that's actually lived it, somebody that gets out of bed the same time as you're expected to get out of bed, that carries the pack, that does the mileage, that, that puts in the hard yards. That's the person that you can ask, 
as I was just asked then, the questions. So what do you do when you get an injury? If I just talked about all these other great athletes that have won the Olympics and done this and that and I spat out all these statistics, it would sound great. But I wouldn't be able to tell you what I'm about to tell you next. So I went in a race. I've done this twice. The race was across America called the Trans-American Foot Race. It started Huntington Beach, California, finished in Central Park, New York. 4,719 kilometres, same distance as across Australia. We touched the Pacific Ocean on one side and we were running across America to the other side. There's 30 of the best runners from all over the world in this race. I just come off the back of running four Sydney to Melbourne races year after year after year and numerous other events. I was looking for a new challenge. I went to America to compete in this race. I went in this event, took on the best in the world and finished second in this race. Second in the world out of the best. 64 days, 80k a day every single day across America. I finished that run in second place. The guy that I was running, uh, the, the beat me, Ray Bell, got an hour's, an hour's lead on everybody else on the first day and then he stuck to me like glue. I was the second fastest in the run. Stuck to me like glue, wouldn't let go of me and even though I pulled back five minutes here or a minute there, a minute there, over the whole duration of the run, he had the perfect tactic and I could not pull away from him any more than that. He just stuck to me. If I ran fast, he ran fast. If I ran slow, he ran slow. I couldn't shake him. If I went to take a pee, he stopped to take a pee as well. If I went to have something to eat, he went to have something to eat. He knew that was his tactic, that's how he's going to win this race. So I came back to Australia. 60 minutes covered that story. And I came back to Australia and everybody said to me, Pat, are you going to go back again? Are you going to win this race? I said, yes, absolutely. I was fired up like a man possessed. I came back here, I trained for two years solid. I went back, 1995, take on the best in the world. I, the gun went off at Huntington Beach, California again, 5 a.m., and we started running. 30 of the best runners from all over the planet. We took off. I, I, I led the race on the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. We came into a place called Fruta, Colorado. I was, I was, I'd run into there from California, 80k a day every single day. I was in the lead of this event, way ahead of the rest of the field. I had a lump on my left shin. I went to bed that night, which was a high school gymnasium, rolled out my swag on the ground, Woke up the next morning, this lump had gone from the size of a golf ball to the size of a football. Started at my ankle and finished at my knee. I limped out to the starters line, the gun went off and I took off as usual and I was in the lead. It wasn't long, about 30 minutes before the rest of the runners started catching me and I started to slow down, they overtook me. And then I found myself in an unusual position at the back of the field. There was a 12-hour cutoff in that race. If you didn't complete the 80 kilometres or the 50 miles within that 12 hours, you were out. It didn't matter where you were placed in the field. If you couldn't complete a day with inside the, the cutoff, you were gone. So I'd fallen to the back of the field. That particular day, I got inside the cutoff by just five minutes. I came into the finish line limping, and all of the other runners, instead of having their showers or going, to, to sleep or rest and relax and they were all waiting at the finish line to see what had happened to me. I limped across the line just inside the finish line. I collapsed, the race doctors got to me. They said, you've got severe shin splints. You've pushed the pace so hard and so fast. You've, got, you've actually, actually have splinted. So not just affected the soft tissue around that area, but actually have splinted the bone and there's little fragments of bone floating around inside the sheath around your, your, your left shin, uh, and that's why the swelling's the way that it is. They said we can put some ice and compression on it, bring down the swelling, and try and help you recover, but you're not gonna be able to run anymore. So they put the ice and they put the, the ice on there and the compression bandages on there, I went to bed that night, all night my legs just throbbed and throbbed and throbbed with pain. I didn't get a wink of sleep. The next morning, all of the runners got out to the starters line. I rolled up my sleeping bag, I got my kit together, threw it in the truck, and I put my running gear on and I walked out to the starters line. The 
race organisers said, what are you doing? I said, well, I finished yesterday. And they said, yeah, but what are you doing? Look at your leg. And I said, yeah, I said, but I said, you can't pull me out of the race unless I don't finish inside the cutoff. So I'm here and I'm starting. And if I don't finish, then I'll, I'm out. So they let me start. And that day I limped and I hopped and I walked and I did whatever I had to do and I finished inside the cutoff again. And I did it again and again and again and again and again and again. And every night I would ice up, every night I would take the necessary painkillers. I used a lot of Nurofen. I'd bandage myself up, my leg up, I'd elevate it. And after two weeks my leg actually went numb uh, to the stage where I was able to lift it up and throw it down reasonably well. And from that point on I started winning stages again and I moved my way through from the back of the field to the front of the field. And by the time we ran into Central Park, New York, I finished that race in fourth place. And I'll never forget, I ran into Central Park, New York, 1995. I finished that event with tears in my eyes from pain and from elation that I'd finally gotten through this enormous task. Uh, and I finished in fourth place. An Australian reporter was over there from 60 Minutes. He threw a microphone in my face. He said, Pat, how do you feel you didn't win? <laughs> Aside from wanting to kill this guy, I, I looked at him and I thought for a moment and then I said to him, today I learned what winning really is all about. I said, anybody can win when everything's in their favour, when the wind's at their back and everything works for them. But a champion can complete the journey and win when everything's against them. I said, today I learnt what winning was all about. I've used that same story when I've gone and spoken to a lot of kids at schools because it's easy to talk about the trophies you got, the medals you got, the prize purse that you won, or the races that you've come first in. It's not so easy to talk about the races where you finished fourth in. But you know what? It is so true. It is so true. Anybody can win when everything's in their favour but it takes a real champion never to give up when things are against you and to push on regardless. And it's in finishing the journey that you are a winner. And from that, I've learnt the lessons of life to be able to push on through everything I've done. And Captain Harrison and, and, and Captain uh, Annie Richardson will tell you exactly the same thing because they've been involved with this journey right from the first stages of it all. That I, even though the route has been changed, even though we have been stopped on so many occasions from doing what we originally set out to do, we have never given up on the goal and the dream. And that's why we're here today, because of that lesson I learned all those years ago, back in 1995 across America. That winning is all about seeing what you started through to the end and not giving up until that point. So I know that hasn't given you the medical, answer that you were probably after. The sensible thing would have been, if I was worried about my physical body, would have been rest up and have a race again next year and just make it repair 100%. I dealt with it the way that I did because I'm stubborn and pig-headed and, and I have to finish everything I've started. And I was on the other side of the world. It was very hard to come back on a plane and just think about the negativity of losing or not finishing what you've started. And so I finished it. but. Um, from a physical point of view, yes, I could have, I could have done all the right things and just uh, fixed it up, gone back again next year. But also from my own physical point of view, and to answer the very first question I got here today, you need to know your body better than anybody else knows it. Study it, learn about it, and know it better than anybody else, and know what it's capable of doing, and know how to repair yourself. And, and uh, well, only one thing I will say to my defence, uh, if, you, if, if you'll allow me this, and it's this. When you get an injury, when you get an injury, uh, um, in the old days we used to rest them up, we used to rest up, we'd ice, we'd rest up, and you didn't do anything. You'd elevate the injury, if it was your leg or whatever, you'd keep it elevated so that it would drain well, and you left it like that. Now the problem with that, and the sports scientists all realise this now, is that you end up with a lot of scar tissue around the region where that happens. Now what they realise is that you need 
good oxygenated blood to circulate around that, that scar tissue and around those areas to take the scar tissue away and to help the fibres knit back together properly. So these days, that's why rehabilitation and the work that is being done here by yourselves in your study and by the, the leaders that are already, already applying this study, that's why the rehabilitation is so important that you stay active through your recuperation phases to enable you to recover faster to you, and to you, enable you to recover completely. So that means that for the scar tissue to be, be taken away by the body's natural process and for that oxygen-enriched blood to be able to let flow around that region to be able to do that. So, so that was one of the most important lessons I ever learned. Uh, from, uh, from, from an injury. So mo most important, with your rehabilitation, you don't just get well by sitting around on your backside and doing nothing and, and hoping that it'll just miraculously repair. It will repair, human body will repair from almost anything. But if you want it to repair as good as it was in the first place, you need that oxygen enriched blood to be flowing through that region to be able to do its job properly and repair and recover properly. And that's why I've, I've been burnt with Bunsen burners and I've, I've suffered frostbite and I've suffered a whole lot of conditions and my body just keeps on, is quite resilient and keeps on repairing itself. Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs>